Would you turn this morning to John chapter 19? We're going to be studying specifically verses 1 through 16, and I'm, I'm going to go with more verse by verse than normal today. I'm going to really try to stay as close to the text as possible because I think it'll really benefit our hearts. It all court, duh, that's it. <laughs> Do you ever say things and you just go, well, duh, Captain Obvious. That's, um, um, I'm just going to try to be more careful with the text. Um, every Sunday, I hope we're doing that. Um, last Sunday, if you, you recall, just like Stephen was saying, uh, man, didn't we just see the gospel portrayed so vividly with the guilty Barabbas going free? But not just free without a price being paid. Barabbas goes free and Christ is condemned. Wow, what a picture of the gospel. And we discovered we had a lot more in common with Barabbas than we realized. And when we realize that, we discover, wow, Christ really did so much for sinners like us. And I believe you're going to see that again today in some other ways and from other angles um, in this trial, this sham trial that Jesus is going through uh, with Pontius Pilate. Um, I think we're going to see even more convicting and comforting pictures of the gospel as our text draws us, as the hymn says, nearer, nearer to the cross. That's where we're going today, where Jesus died for our sins. So as we read, I'm going to ask you to pay close attention to a couple of things. Would you pay pay close attention to what sinners did to Jesus? Would you pay close attention to what we have in common with Pontius Pilate and with the Jewish leaders? Would you pay even closer attention to what Jesus did for sinners like us? What sinners did to Jesus what Jesus did for sinners. And if we can come out of this morning with with that, I think we'll be very glad. So would you uh, follow along with me as we read this precious word from God, this precious love letter from God, this precious hope-giving, faith-building, sin-convicting, and sin-forgiving letter from God. Chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. When the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Oh, but the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the Son of God. Heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered into his headquarters again and said to Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. 
From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. He sat him down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Oh, Lord. God, um, I think you could speak for all of us to say that uh, we, we, it's so easy for us to grow familiar with Passion Week, with the, the stories, the, the truth, the historical narratives that lead us to the cross. And we can become so familiar to them that, Lord, we, I hate to say it, but I think we, we're not as convicted by them as we used to be and as we need to be now. And when we're not convicted by these things, Lord, we, we then begin to lose the experience of how amazing your grace is and how deep your forgiveness is and how deep the Father's love for us is. So would you use this text this morning to draw us again nearer to the cross and to our Christ so that we might experience all of the grace you intended for your sons and daughters. We don't want to grow accustomed to this story. We want to be transformed by it. We ask these things for your glory and for our godly good and so that we might better represent you as a light, gospel light, in the darkness of Midland. In Jesus' name, amen. Why are we so quick to sin and so slow to repent? Why do we so easily trust in alternative authoritative voices to help us determine what's right and wrong rather than to trust in God's word? Why do we so easily bow down to the things and people of this world and eliminate the king of kings from our minds in order to get what we want out of the world? I think that one of the reasons is because at that moment, that weird, confusing fog moment where our own desires for pleasure, our pride, peer pressure, pain, worry, and fear, in that weird fog of all of that stuff, we are deluded into believing that we have the ability to determine right and wrong without any help. We don't need God's word as our authoritative voice. We, we've, we've chosen or allowed other authoritative voices into our lives. We don't really believe that sin is really that deadly. Think of the last time you spoke sinfully harsh to your spouse. Did you really believe sin was that deadly? And that rather than it being offense, rather than it just being an offense against our spouse or against our children or against one another, we've totally forgotten that it was mainly an offense against God. 
Oh, that certainly God understands or even approves of why I chose my will and not his. I'll, I'll never forget a counseling situation where we were dealing with adultery in two couples in a church that I was at years ago. And uh, one of the most frightening moments in counseling for me. I was, I was confronting at this point, we had already confronted the man who was the adulterer, and now we were confronting the woman who was the adulteress. And this is what she tells me. She looks right in my eyes. It, man, it was just cold. And she says, well, I know that what I'm doing is wrong, but God wants me to be happy. So, of course, he'll forgive me for what I've done wrong, and we can just on and live happily ever after as a new husband and wife. Oh my God. Because God understood. Because God wants her to be happy. Do you see the alternative voices she's listening to in that situation? I think it's at those moments we discover our confessional faith and functional faith and how they're different. I think at those moments we discover whether Christ or the things of this world is the king that we worship. And when we're soft on sin and we crown the world as our king, oh, we can so forget how joyfully refreshing repentance is. I hope you see repentance as one of the most attractive words of scripture. It's meant to bring refreshing to sinners. We forget how powerfully life-changing forgiveness is. Forgiveness isn't to make us feel better. Forgiveness is to transform us and move us forward in the plan of God. And it, and it causes us to lose sight of God's power to grow us in godliness one day at a time and to actually gain more and more victory over sinful temptations. Well, I believe our text this morning can awaken callous consciences, can awaken sleeping consciences of which I have. Not, not that we, in all of your consciences asleep or calloused. We're more complicated than that. There are things that are working, that, are, that are, are leaning into God, but don't you and I have parts of our hearts where we're stubborn? Oh God, awaken our sleeping consciences where they're asleep. Bring us fresh conviction of sin. Revive us through repentance. Comfort us when it's hard to carry our cross. And compel us afresh to worship Christ as our King of Kings. That's what I'm praying for for this sermon. Main point this morning is, is this. When we sin, we are like the scoffers who wanted Christ killed and the world to be their king. But when we repent of sin and worship the king who died for us, we experience the depth of our Father's love. And I think you'll see it as the text unfolds. So my first question to you is this, what is your authoritative voice for deciding what's right and what's wrong? What is your authoritative voice for deciding what's right and what's wrong? Let's see how this text flows. Chapter 19, verse 1. So after the cries of give us Barabbas, then Pilate takes Jesus, because that didn't work, right? Him, Pilate trying to play a trading game didn't work. So now Pilate takes Jesus and flogs him. He, he's not so much trying to do what is right in this, but he's trying to protect his position of power by appeasing the Jewish leaders in a way that would not get him in trouble with Caesar. He's just a manipulator. He's just a game player, and he's way, I'm, and I find myself way too much like him. So he punishes Jesus with a flogging without going so far as to kill him. Because he does not believe Jesus is guilty of any charge worthy of death. So you know that flogging or scourging was a common form of punishment that was used in both Jewish and Roman legal systems. Rome had three levels of flogging depending on how serious your crime was. 
in its most severe form. Oh my goodness. And I'm refraining from We, we, we watch such gore on TV and movies. I don't know why I'm refraining. The gore of the most serious part, the most serious example of scourging would be enough probably to make us pass on lunch today. I'm not going to go that far, but I don't want to not talk about it either. In its most severe form, it was extremely violent. It's likely that Jesus was stripped of all of his clothes, he tied to a post, and beaten with something called the flagella. That was leather whips to which were attached to a, to a, a, a stick, kind of a rod, and attached to each one of those leather strips were iron, bone, or spikes. Think of, if you're a fisherman, think of a treble hook. Not intended for the mouth of a fish, but the back of a victim. You ever get a treble hook in your finger? I'm not a good fisherman. I've hooked myself more than I've hooked fish. And treble hooks, oh my goodness, they take it to a whole new level. These hooks would shred the skin. So don't think of, I, I, there, you know, we get these ideas. We're not letting the Bible define itself. We, we think of something like Indiana Jones, because he has a whip, doesn't he? Yeah, I wouldn't like to be hit with that whip. But it can't compare to this. This isn't just leaving some, some little bloody scars across the back of its victim. This would shred the skin, often leaving it hanging from the victim's back in strips. Medical doctors who have studied this punishment said that in its worst forms, you'd be able to see the victim's ribs. And in some cases, even the internal organs. Did you know that this was spoken of many, many years before it happened to Jesus in Psalm 22? I've got lots of scripture references in your notes today, and here's why. Because it helps us remember that our authoritative voice is God's word, not our feelings, not the opinions of others, not a, a human government, not, not a disease, not... God's word is our authoritative voice, and aren't we glad for it? So we're going to go through a lot of scripture references today. I think they're going to help you see all of the backstory to what's happening here. I think it'll bring fresh conviction and encouragement to our hearts. Listen to what Psalm 22 said and how similar it sounds to what's happening to Jesus now. Verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Think about Isaiah 53, verse 2b and 3. It's in your notes as well. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. It sounds like a newspaper writer is right there watching the beating of Jesus and, in, and recording it in real time rather than God speaking forth these prophecies about the coming Messiah who would save us from our sin years and years before. 39 lashes was a maximum in Jewish law. The Romans had no limit. 
In fact, do you know that historians say that, that multiple strong men would be involved in this exercise because one of them would wear himself out and then he'd have to hand it over to the next man. So can you imagine that? These guys, and especially, get ready because we're going to go deeper into their shaming of Jesus and their mocking of Jesus. There, there's already this anti-Semitic, this arrogant feel that's all going around, not to mention the darkness of, of the lies of the devil and the presence of evil. Can you imagine these men taking that stick and these leather strips and bone and iron and, and, and stone and, and taking it and, and, and not just, not, not like a whip like this. They're wanting to set the hooks. So they're wanting, they're coming like this. They're waiting for the hooks to be set in the flesh. And then with all of their might, they pull. There comes the first strips of flesh falling down from his back. The pain and the shame of this. And that wasn't enough, was it? Verse 2, the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. John spends less time on the physical suffering of Jesus than, than some of the other gospel writers. What he really accentuates is the shame Jesus bore for us. Do you know he not only bore your sin, do you know he bore your shame? God wants to free you. For those of us who still can be haunted, we know we're forgiven, but we're still ashamed. We're, we're still following, like as, almost as though we're not really changed. We're, we're still that person who did that vile thing that we remember doing before we knew Christ as our Lord and Savior. And that shame still follows us. And Jesus bore the shame as well as the sin, the punishment of sin. It's very interesting how John calls attention to how he bore that shame. They shamefully abuse his reputation as the king of the Jews, and they use it to make a mockery of him. After stripping him for the flogging, the soldiers shame the one whose robe is righteousness. Let's not forget that. He is, he is completely man, but he is always completely God. This is the one whose very robe is righteousness, and they put on this purple thing, making Jesus look like the king of clowns, not the king of righteousness. The word crown normally is used for a wreath of victory in sports here, the word crown here, or, or after a battle, um, and the victory goes to the king in, in the battle. In addition to a royal crown, essentially, you know, what they're saying is he's neither royal nor victorious. Proof? Look what we're doing to him. You're going to follow this guy? Look what we're doing to your king. Powerless king. Can't even save himself. The crown of thorns. Let's always remember to, to, do you remember when we started the book of John, how much of the book of John is rooted in the book of Genesis? Do you remember that? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This crown of thorns points us back to Genesis, doesn't it? Some of you already know where I'm going. Genesis 3, 17 and 18. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Here again is Jesus bearing our curse. And bearing the pain of that curse upon himself, symbolized by that crown of thorns. They're mocking him, but they're, all they're really doing is continuing to be a part of God fulfilling his plan of redemption. The curse was put on Jesus so we could go free. So those thorns point us right back to the garden. You see what sinners are doing to Jesus. 
and what Jesus is doing for us. They're forcing this crown upon his head and Jesus wears it gladly to save you and me. That's amazing. Do you react like that when people treat you like that? Oh, I want to be more like him, guys. I want to respond to sinners who sin against me more like Jesus' response to this sinner with the death of his son. Oh, I want to be more like him. Verse 3, they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. So the shame continues. They're bowing down in phony worship. They're proclaiming, Hail, King of the Jews. That, that was a praise. That was a, that was a take, off, take off of the phrase that would be offered to Caesar. It would be, Hail, King Caesar. As they stood up, the custom was, so you, would, you would bow to, the, to King Caesar, you would bow to him, and then you would stand. And when you stood, you would either kiss his ring or kiss his cheek. You see how the mockery goes. They don't kiss him. They punch him in the face. They hit him. The other gospels say they hit him with rods. Hit him on his head with rods. And the soldiers were unaware, weren't they, that one day they would have to, if they didn't repent, maybe some of these guys repented, but they were blind to the fact that one day they would have to bow to him again. Philippians 2, 8 through 11 says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, the Lord Jesus Christ is inviting you to come and receive the gift of salvation, to bow to him in humble uh, confession of your sin, that, that you, you are not God and he is, that you're sorry for what you've done against him and breaking his commandments and thinking that your plan was better than his plan. Yes, you, you come, you would bow down to him to receive him as Lord and Savior. But then you know what he, was, he would do? He would lift you up to treat you as a son or as a daughter. But if you leave and you continue to resist Christ, you continue to reject Christ, there will be a day where you will bow down to him. And you will confess that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And all it will do will be to vindicate his truth. But it will not save you. Pilate went out again to them and he said, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Pilate finds that Jesus is not guilty of a charge that would require death. And so he brings Jesus out to show that he's willing to punish him in hopes of pacifying the Jews and to keep himself in the good graces of Caesar. So Jesus comes out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Wow, it, that's an important statement that I think probably a lot of us just kind of have gone over pretty quickly and really missed the, the joy and the meaning and the, the depth of love and the depth of conviction that can come from this. So Jesus is coming out in this costume of a beaten, shamed, defeated, weak, and impotent king. He has no army to rescue him. Even his most loyal followers have abandoned him. You Jews and we Romans have nothing to worry about. You can just imagine the Jews and the Romans. We've nothing to worry about. This man is no threat to anybody. And Pilate declares, behold the man. That may be what Pilate wants the eyes of the Jews to see. But God has a statement that's coming out of Pilate's mouth because I think he's wanting us to see something massively important here. 
Did you know the first time this phrase was used was back in Genesis? Speaking of a specific man, his name was Adam. And it's when God is declaring Adam as guilty and separated from God by his sin. It's in, your, it's in your notes. This is Genesis 3, 22 through 24. Would you follow along with me? Then the Lord said, Behold the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Though Adam would still live physically, his existence would be one who is dead in sin, dead to God, alive to sin. The title, Behold the Man, Behold the Sinner, Behold the Sinful Man, we could say. It announces that Adam and all who are born through Adam exist in a state of depravity and, and the death that that sin deserves. But in the Gospel of John, so here's Adam. Aren't you glad there's a second Adam? Here's where Adam failed. Aren't you glad God sent someone who wouldn't fail? In the Gospel of John, we see God bringing a reversal of this state of death for sinful mankind. And he, and he begins it with the coming of Jesus. God the Son became a man so that he could be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And instead of bringing death into mankind, he brings life for whoever would believe in him. Have you followed him as Lord? Have you experienced that new life? Come on. Oh, you guys, if there's an unbeliever here, please forgive us. Have you experienced undeserved, unconditional love, grace given, eternal joy, new life in Jesus? Oh, may we never get used to that, guys. Stephen, thank you. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take our place. That you would bear our cross. And I love, listen, you did a great job singing at that. I guess, Stephen, you're just a better leader of this than I, than I am. So you guys did great for that. This is an amazing thing of what God is doing. Jesus bears our curse. Why? Because Jesus reverses the curse. When we trust him as Lord and Savior, he begins the process of making all things new. Did you know your salvation is the first taste of eternity? You're born again. You're a new creature. It's the very beginning of the curse being reversed in your life. And it's not going to stop until you're with him in glory. John is proving to us that he is the Savior King because of the beatings he's received. The, the Pilate and the Jews would be saying, don't believe in him because of the beatings he's receiving. We know we believe in him because he was bruised and beaten for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace fell upon him. Verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. Pilate hoped that the Jews would soften their stand and they would pity Jesus. But his plan failed miserably, didn't it? You ever, guys, have you ever known, known that manipulation just never wins in the long run? Manipulation, coercion. You might feel like you're getting away with something at the moment, but it will never last. Instead, these guys become like sharks when they sense blood in the water. 
even though they were religious, even though they knew God's word, they did not know the God of the word. And so they did not know and love the son. God's word was not their authoritative voice, their lust for power, their arrogant pride, their thirst for the praise of people. That was their authoritative voice. And they were even willing to kill the son of God to get what they wanted. We're going to revisit that in a little bit. Chapter 19, verse 7 says, The Jews answered him. So here goes more manipulation. We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. Jews are playing their ace card here. According to their law, this man is required to die for blasphemy. And that's in the book of Leviticus. The truth of the gospel is being unconsciously spoken (laughs) by both opponents to Jesus, both Pilate and the Jews. Pilate is proclaiming the sinlessness of Jesus and the Jews are declaring that he needs to die to fulfill the law. I have to be honest with you guys. Man, as I've read the book of John, I've studied and we've been preaching through it. I honestly, I honestly sometimes feel, I feel like, have I ever read this book? <laughs> have I ever read this book? And I'm so, and isn't that really good? Because this will never grow old for all eternity. There's always going to be something new to discover about the depth of God's love. One man said it this way, even in heaven, you know, people say, oh, I'm going to be so bored in heaven. Oh my gosh. I'm going to be so bored in heaven. All we sing is holy, holy, holy. This guy said, you know why you do that? Because you see him for who he is and, and holy, beautiful, lovely, unlike anyone else. Worthy of our praise. So you see him and you go, holy, holy, holy. And then you look up. You see something new. Holy, holy, holy. And you look up again. Oh, I see something new. Holy, holy, holy. That happens with, not like the way it's with the Lord, but it happens with Jan. I still think my wife is a fox. I mean, I just, she just gets better and more beautiful to me. I just, and if if a covenant of marriage can have that happening in it, what about the covenant of salvation? Where he becomes more and more beautiful. They knew that even though Pilate did not believe in the God of the Jews, he was a polytheist. And they hope to manipulate him even further by playing with his conscience. That's what manipulators do, have you noticed? They try to play with your conscience. That's what, if I can just get you to see that, oh, you are so wrong and I am so right. Let's go a little deeper here. So when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Okay, what's that about? Well, Pilate's more afraid at this point than he was fearful of the Jews or even Caesar because what if Jesus was a representative of one of the gods he worshipped? Will this bring a curse if he dishonors him? This is such a puny illustration, but have anybody ever watched Undercover Boss? Besides me. A few of us, Undercover Boss. Undercover Boss is this show where... The corporate head wants to kind of see what's happening in the midst of uh, his his company, and so he they he goes to a makeup artist. Uh, you know, he put bigger noses or mustaches or tanning things and all this kind of stuff. And he goes and he hangs out. He comes in like like he's applying for a job and he's look, trying to get to know the company better. And then the show ends, right? So he's, he's hearing a lot of stuff, isn't he? And have you ever noticed that in every company, people love to talk about their bosses? It's not always good. <laughs> and so so he's, he's there and he's listening and he's hearing he's good things. He's, he's taking note of really good things. Oh, but he's, he's like Santa Claus. He's making a list. And he's checking it twice. He knows who's naughty, doesn't he? And at the end of the show, they call the, pe- the people in that he met with. And, uh, and he, he comes as himself. He's no more, no more costume. Surprise! 
<laughs> and just about in every show, he meets with the guy or the lady that trashed the bosses and trashed the company and discovered they got their two-week paycheck and their notice of being fired. That's a small taste of what Pilate was feeling. Like, has, 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 has the gods come? And now they're, they're, they're watching me up close and personal. And so he's freaking out. You combine that with, remember his wife had a dream and warned him that Pilate was to have nothing to do with this righteous man. You throw all of that in and Pilate is squirming and more and more willing to compromise because, because he, he did not believe an authoritative voice above his own. He did not believe an authoritative voice above Caesar's, above worldly people or institutions, but mainly his own authoritative voice. His authoritative voice was his opinions, was his desires, was his fears of other people. Verse 9 says, he entered his headquarters again and he says to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate's question is asking, are you, are you, are you a man or are you God? Well, Jesus had already answered that question, didn't he? He said he came into the world from beyond the world to bear witness to the truth. He already told Pilate that. John the Baptist described Jesus as the one who comes from above. Jesus, you guys, Jesus is a great example of righteously explaining yourself without sinfully defending yourself. So whenever you're in some controversy and things like that, look to the way Jesus handles things. He righteously explains himself but sinfully does not have to defend himself because God is his defense. Isaiah 53, 7, once again, where he's fulfilling scripture with his silence. Look at what it says. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Do you know why? I mean, do you really, do you know why he didn't say anything? Because at this moment, you're really getting a glimpse into him saying, because I'm guilty of what? I'm being, I'm willing to be treated guilty for your sin. So he doesn't say anything because he's bearing our guilt. He has nothing to say. He's the sin bearer. Oh, Precious people, if, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord, you're never, Stephen said this, you're never going to be loved like Jesus will love you. Who will take the blame for all of your wrong? And not just the blame, but be willing to die instead of you. That's amazing grace. That's unfailing love. Verse 10, Pilate says to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? You, this beaten up, defeated, powerless, so-called king, you don't speak to me in all of my royal power? Don't you know the power and authority I have? The ability I have to determine right and wrong, to determine your future? Oh my goodness, you know, when pleasure or pain or pride are threatening to rule your heart, when their authoritative voices are ruling your heart and not the word of God and the work of Christ, it's easy to forget who's in control. And we can be deceived in thinking that I'm the master of my faith. I am the captain of my soul. And yet everything in this increasingly darkening evil scene is happening according to God's plan, to save sinners through his son. Do you see that? What sinners are doing to Jesus, and all it's doing is put, putting, creating a stage to show us what Jesus does for sinners. That's what this is. Oh, my God. 
Verse 11, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. He's saying there's a greater voice of authority than Pilate's desires and his pride and his pleasures and his fears. And any authority Pilate has in himself has been given by God in order to fulfill God's plan. Pilate is not the source of his authority. Caesar is not the source of his authority. God is the source of his authority. Please remember that when you see the news this week. Washington, D.C. is not the eternal city. There is a new city to come <laughs> that is eternal in the heavens. Oh, bring that day, Lord. So this is saying, this mystery, so God is totally sovereign and man is responsible. Do you see it? God's totally in control and you are responsible. So he's, he's showing, hey, Pilate, you, you have guilt, but there's actually a greater guilt and it's the ones who turned you, turned Jesus over uh, to me. Or it's turned me over to, uh, to you. So when you face temptation like this, what king do you serve? I, so I even go back to your week. All of us were tempted this week. What king did you serve? Were you aware that this was a choice of two kingdoms? Were you aware that what you were being offered was not just something that can be measured by time and dollars? You were being faced with a choice of, of following the king of heaven or the king of the world. That's always before us. And I, I think I, I lose sight of that. I sin so easily because I'm so much a child of this world. My heart still is so gripped by worldly things. And, and I'm not aware enough that every decision, every thought is a tale of two kingdoms, we could say. Not just a tale of two cities, a tale of two kingdoms. Will I follow the king of kings or will I declare that the world and all that it has is what I'll bow down to? So let's, I want us to read John 12, 12, I mean John 19, 12 and 13 and John 19, 15 and 16 because just reading it all together I think will, will help us. So let's take a peek again at 12 and 13. From then on Pilate sought to release him but the Jews cried out, if you release this man you are not Caesar's friend. The Jews are saying this. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and he sits him down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Skip over 14. We're going to end the sermon with verse 14. Uh, back And then to 15. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. The chief priests, those who've memorized the first five books of the Bible, they say, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Pilate just keeps wanting to release Jesus, so... The Jews manipulate him even more. Pilate, you're either a friend of Jesus or a friend of Caesar. You release Jesus, we tell Caesar that you are loyal to a different king. And that's treason, Pilate. And they'll kill you for that, Pilate. And they screamed it and they made it public. You ever notice when you're with just another person, that that person, one of the tactics is, I'm going to tell other people. I'm going to get a bigger army than your army. That's what's going on here. This peer pressure. Pilate was faced with either his own likely death from Caesar if he let Jesus go or to have Jesus die in place of Pilate. Here we go again. The gospel once again, isn't it? 
So Pilate condemns Jesus so he can go free, at least for the time being, not eternally free. The innocent condemned so the guilty could go free. By forcing Pilate to choose Caesar over Jesus, the Jews have also chosen Caesar, the Roman, over their Messiah king. They've chosen to bow down to an earthly king and not the king of kings. They've broken covenant in the promise that they would only serve God as their king. So Pilate sits on the judgment seat to bring a temporary judgment against the king who will also sit on a judgment seat and bring an eternal judgment for those who have rejected his offer of love and forgiveness and salvation. And Pilate says, behold your king. And the Jews, I mean, they don't stop. They shout even louder, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? And the high priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. I want to ask you something. James chapter 4 says, what are the source of conflicts among you? Is it not your desires that are at war within you? You want something and you can't get it. Do you know how it ends? So you kill. What did they want so much that it was worth killing Jesus over? Let me ask us this. What do we want so much that we're willing to eliminate Jesus from our mind and from our value system to figuratively crucify him again so we can get what we want? See, I think this is where, I think this is why we're not as convicted by sin as we, as we should. I think we just see sin as bad choices. Guys, I think what this text is trying to get across to us is every act of sin is essentially a cry for the crucifixion of Jesus. I'll never forget some skit that I watched that some teenagers do that forever marked me. And it was, it was just a, like a high school student walking around and, and Jesus was following him, offering him his love and wanting to give him help and counsel and fellowship and, and salvation. And, and the high school kid was just getting more and more bothered by it. He was at his locker. He was in his classroom. He was at third base when he was playing third base. And finally, the kid just is fed up with with Jesus. And so they, they show this kid, and so here's the Jesus the guy pretending to be Jesus, and he, he just says, stop it! Shut up! I don't want you! And he raises the, 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 the Jesus figure's hand, and he slaps it, and he slaps it, and he slaps it! And I got brought to my knees, because isn't that what I do? Every time I say no, to him. I don't want you invading my value system. Don't talk to me about how I'm justified or not justified to yell at my wife. When, when I need you, I'll call you. Oh, guys, I think that's why we take sin so lightly it cost Jesus his life, and he paid it gladly for us. That's how bad our sin is. So, don't raise your hands, but who's, who is re, who's refusing right now to forgive your spouse of something? And you don't think it's that bad. You think you're justified. Because someone who loves you should have never spoken to you like that. And you're blind to Jesus. It's all about your kingdom, isn't it? It's all about your justice. And all the while, Jesus died for that. You're, you're essentially saying, get out of here, Jesus. This is between my wife and I. This is between church member to church member. This is between friend to friend. Do you see why we want to repent quickly and seek help to grow out of unforgiveness and bitterness? 
It's not prime. Our unforgiveness and bitterness is not primarily a statement about your spouse or your friend. It's our intention to remove Jesus from consideration. To, that, that, that I am my authoritative voice, not God's word. And to enthrone myself or the things of the world as king, rather than to trust and obey. For there's no other way <laughs> to be happy in Jesus. It's just so easy to justify evil because of the good we think it's going to bring us. Or because we think we deserve better. How easy it is to crown Jesus with the thorns of our rejection and crown the world with our worship. You're either going to have to kill off Jesus in your thoughts and your values and your desires in order to get on with your life. Or what I would encourage you to do, how about trust Jesus as your very life? Well, how does Jesus handle all this? And that's why I left verse 14 to the end. Oh, my. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. As the Jews were preparing for the Passover, Jesus was preparing to die as the true Passover. The one and only lamb that can, the only one who can take away the sin of the world I mean, just think of it, guys. All the little stories we know of Scripture. When Remember Jesus, the second time he's cleansing the temple of all the, and the sacrifices, all the lambs and goats and things. He's chasing away. You know why? (laughs) We don't need them anymore. I'm putting them out because I'm coming in. I've come to give my life for the worst of sinners. I've come to pay the price for Pilate. I've come to pay the price for the Jewish leaders, Caiaphas and Ananias. I've come to be the Passover lamb that would be slain for sinners. And that's my proof. That's my, you want my credentials that I'm king of kings? I paid the price for your sins through my death. That's my credentials. So what do we get that? Well, you know, I hope we've portrayed this, or I hope we've unpacked this well. You ever suffer when you're trying to follow Jesus? You ever know what it is to, it's sometimes hard to carry the cross, isn't it? Through, through Jesus' suffering, he meets us and comforts us and empowers us in our suffering. That's an important thing. No one knows rejection like Jesus. No one knows abuse like Jesus. No one knows trauma like Jesus. No one knows being shamed like Jesus does. And Jesus wants to meet us in those places of our lives, doesn't he? And take us by the hand. And, and not just the empathy thing. Not just sympathy or empathy. Not just, not just a Jesus who says... Oh, I know how you feel. I, I mean, I like it if somebody tries to know how I feel, but I don't most need you to know how I feel. I, I, that, that's a touch point for me. That's amazing that you know how I feel. I'm not alone. And then Jesus says, now let me lead you out of the valley of the shadow of death. Don't we, don't we need him to do that? Meet us where we are. He knows what our suffering is like through his suffering. But he's done something far better, hasn't he? He suffered judgment in our place. He reverses the curse. He gives us new life and the promise that he'll finish what he began and lead us into an eternity. Oh, guys, where there will be no more tears. There will be no more sin. There will be no more death. There will be no more devil. And all things will be made new. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Stephen, come on up, buddy. We got to sing that song. We got to sing that song. Um, Guys, this is how God transforms scoffers into sons and daughters.
through conviction of sin, through repentance and faith in Christ and his death on the cross. That's how we experience how deep the Father's love is for us. Would you stand? As the team is getting ready, I'm going to pray for us. Oh, Heavenly Father, um, it's just untold how often I have pushed you away, how I've killed you out of my value system. I, I just have eliminated you. I have been so passionate about my kingdom coming and my will being done. And, and Lord, I deserve hell for it. I, I deserve eternal separation from you. But what do you do instead? You die in my place. You were rejected so I could be accepted. All because of the deep, deep love of Jesus and how deep the Father's love is for us. God, would you help us grow in godliness? Lord, I, I just, if there's going to be revival before you come again, I don't know that it's going to come without, without your people growing in holiness and wanting to grow in holiness and, and that our consciences are more formed and shaped by Scripture, that, that, that we're, we're, we're slower to sin <laughs> and quicker to repent and rejoice in repentance. And, oh, Lord Jesus, would you pour out your love upon your people now? Through Jesus our Lord. Amen.